It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you, and I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. This is God's word. Amen. And so the scripture tells us always to remember or recount the things that God has done. And in fact, in the Old Testament, whenever God spoke with the people of Israel through a prophet, he would tell them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt into the land that you dwell in now. And remember all the things that I did when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, how I conquered the Egyptians, and all of those things. And the emphasis is always to remember and to recount and to repeat the things that God has done in the past. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, he is writing to a church that is under persecution and suffering. And in order to give him exhortation and to encourage them, he basically gives them history of saints that lived in the past. He speaks about Abel in chapter 11, verse 4. In verse, in verse 8, he says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. In verse 17, he again talks about Abraham. In verse 23, he talks about Moses and how by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden by his parents who disobeyed what the king has said in order to keep him alive. In verse 32, more examples are given of different men like David and Samuel and prophets and all the other things that God did to let the people during his time know that whatever you're going through has happened in the past. Saints that were just as human as you went through them. God was with them. And they overcame. And so he says that to them as a way to encourage them. Because when bad things happen, you tend to think this, like you're the only person that is going through this. But you're not. Human beings have been around for a long time. God has been around just as long and more. And the world has always been what it is whether we like it or not. And so the scriptures is always telling us to look back to history. So looking at history is something that as a church we have to do. And so the point of church history is to simply look at what's happened before us because we didn't, we didn't drop out of the air that there has been a whole group of men and women before us who struggled, 
who suffered, who had victories, who survived, and it was their effort that got us here. And so it is always a good thing to recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord because the deeds of the saints are God's work. When you read about a great man of God or a great woman of God, what you are reading is what God did through them. What a faithful man of God. How great the grace of God worked in that man's life is what actually happens. So our work are God's deeds. So when we read about the saints from the past, we are reading about the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Now, church history, technically, is the history of everything. Because we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that before God said, there, let there be light, and there was light, there was already a church in the mind of God. God always wanted a people that would worship him, that had faith in him, and upon whom he can give his gifts, love, and mercy. So that began all the way before the world began. And so technically, the history of the world has been the history of the church because it's how God has been redeeming people to himself to bring him into a relationship with him so he could be their God and they could be his people. But... For the sake of time, we're not going to cover all of human history. That would be impossible. And so technically, when you speak about church history, you're not speaking about the history of everything. You're specifically addressing the history that happened after the apostles. The apostles died. The New Testament was finished. From that moment down to us, is what we technically call church history, even though it goes all the way back to eternity. And so last time where we left off was the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. That was in 70 AD. Most of the apostles, I believe, probably all of the apostles, but we don't know, were dead by that time, with the exception of one, and that was John. The Apostle John died around 95, 90, 95 AD. We don't, we're not sure exactly, but somewhere along, John dies. When John dies, that's the end of what we call the apostolic era. After that, we have the beginning of what we call church history. So. Because I have a whiteboard, and it's easier than making a PowerPoint. 
I'm going to draw a line. All right. If you can't see this, move forward. I can't bring this over there. 100 AD. Okay. Roughly, it depends on who you ask. Let's say 700 AD. Okay. This period here, we called, we call this period the early church. See, people divide church history in segments in order to make sense of it. So we call this period the early church period. There you go. That's in Spanish. Early church, period. So roughly first 500, 600 years, depending who you ask, some people push it forward, some people bring it back. But roughly, that's the early church period. So when you read a book about church history or anything, and they say the early church or the fathers of the early church, that's what they're talking about. We're talking about before roughly what we call the Middle, the Middle Ages. This period had a series of writers, bishops, monks, and other men and women who wrote and whose lives were written down that we remember. And throughout history, people have studied them because these were the first Christians. After the apostles died, these were the first Christians. And so people study them to see how did the church survive without the apostles. Because when Paul was alive and we had issues, we would write a letter to Paul inquiring about the issues that we had. Paul will write a letter back telling us what to do. But what happened when Paul died, and Peter died, and John died? Well, we have their writings. And the writings of the apostles being inspired by the Holy Spirit became the foundation of the church. See, the church was still going back to the apostles. We are still going back to the apostles. Because their writings live on for, you know, throughout church history, even though they died, the ministry of the apostles never died. The ministry of the 12 apostles never dies. This is what we're doing in this church. We are reading the New Testament, which was written by the 12 apostles, which is the means by which the Holy Spirit builds his church. So the men that came after the apostles were building upon the foundations of the apostles, even though the apostles had died. So that's early church history. This is going to be the first couple of hundred years of church history. It's what we call early church history. Around 325 AD, this is going to get very confusing, but bear with me. We have something called... The Council of Nicaea, you've probably heard about that, if you've been in this church at least, of Nicaea. There you go. 
I don't have the time to get into what that was. We will eventually. But that was a very important event that happened in the early church and in Rome. Not only important in church history, it's important in history period because it changed a lot of things about the Roman Empire and what happened after the Roman Empire and how that influenced civilization. Prior to the Council of Nicaea, this is from 100 to 325, there's a period that is called the Anti-Nicene, let me write it in Spanish, Anteniceno, the Anti-Nicene period. Anti is Latin for before, and Nicene means Nicaea. The Anti-Nicene fathers are those Christians and leaders who lived prior to the Council of Nicaea. They dealt with a lot of persecution. By this time, there was no persecution. But before Nicaea, there was a lot of persecution that they endured. And so if you're reading anything and you hear the anti-Nicene father is referring specifically to the men and women who lived during this small period of time, roughly 200, almost 300 years of church history. Are we good? It's going to get more confusing. Now, from about 100 to about 150, we have a group of men that we call Apostolic Fathers. Apostolic Fathers. There is five of them. We would talk about three. The reason why is because two of them, we don't have their writings. And he who writes is he who is remembered, usually. There's three men. Now, why are they called the Apostolic Fathers? Because all of them have a direct connection to a living apostle. Every single one of these men was either a disciple or a spiritual son or were saved under the ministry and the preaching of an actual living apostle. This is why we call them the apostolic fathers. That is very important. Because none of these men, not one of these men, called themselves an apostle. If anybody in the history of the world could claim to be an apostle would be this people. Because you can actually go to them and be like, hey, why do you call yourself an apostle? Well, I knew John. John knew Jesus. Pretty, it's pretty solid right there. That's way better than, hey, why do you call yourself an apostle? Well, I live in Kissimmee. And I took a course. The apostolic fathers were directly connected to a living apostle. Okay? 
Now, the study of all of this, people go to seminary, people go to schools to study all of this. The study of this we call the patristics, or in Spanish, patristica. You're welcome. Which comes from the Latin word pater, which means father. We get our Spanish word padre, or paternity, or paternal. Patristics is the study of the church, early church writings. So this is going to be the first thing. If you're going to study church history, you will study the patristics or the early church period. Now, the writings of the church fathers are very important. They offer guidance. They show us what they received and what they carried forward. But the writings of the church fathers are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only in scriptures, only the scriptures can bind our conscience. Not the writings of the fathers. That doesn't mean they're not important, but that doesn't mean they are everything. But they do offer a guidance for us because one of the problems that we have in our day and the culture that we live is that anybody can say or interpret the Bible however they want based on their own ideas and say, hey, this is what I think the Bible says. Well, if what you think the Bible says has never been seen before, is something completely new, is something that really doesn't even kind of conform any way close to what came before, then I'm probably not going to your church. Because God did not inspire the apostles, then went to heaven, and then dropped back down in 2018 or something. God, the Holy Spirit, has been working throughout of all of human history, revealing truth, opening understanding to his word. Men have been used, and women in the past, to help us understand his word better. It's not me and the Bible and God. Me and the Bible and God usually means some crazy cult based on one guy who supposedly has all the truth that nobody has seen before. The truth has always been. Somebody has seen it before. And so church history keeps you within the guidelines. It keeps you in the path. It's the... Is the, what do you call that? You know, when you drive in the mountains in Puerto Rico, you have the, what do you call it? The rail that keep you from like going over and plunging to death. That's history. It keeps you within that proximity. And so when you see things 
hear things that are new. Nobody heard of this before. Chances are it's not true. Again, that doesn't mean the fathers are inspired. But it does mean that God has been working throughout history in his church. That he never left them because he told them, I'm not, I will not leave you and forsake you. Well, he did not do that. All right? So one of the reasons we must study church history is because of that. We must understand the guardrails that keep us in the path. Now, the apostolic fathers. There's three of them that we'll cover. Like I said, there's, there's two more that are mentioned. We don't have their writings. Three of them. Ignatius or Ignacio, not Iggy, of Antioch. That's the one in Syria, not the one in Colombia. There's an Antioquia in Colombia. That's not the one. It's the one in Syria. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John. Another disciple of the Apostle John is Polycarp of Smyrna. It is debated whether or not he was the bishop when John wrote to the church of Smyrna in Revelation. We don't know if that's true, that's debated. Could be. Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. He was a direct connection to a living apostle. And then you have Clement. Clemente, Clement. Of Rome, de Roma. In fact, if you go to Philippians chapter 4, See if I can find that for you really quick. You see? Yeah, chapter 4, Philippians 4, verse 2. It says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That Clement, tradition tells us, is Clement of Rome, who was the disciple of both Paul and Peter. So again, all three of these men have a direct connection to a living Apostle. So think of that. Whatever they write, which we will cover, we're not going to read all of their writings, are things that they receive directly from an apostle. Are their writings inspired? No. But whatever they got is what they saw, received, learned from a living apostle. Clement and Ignatius, we only have one letter, one epistle. Ignatius, no, actually, 
polycarbon clement, sorry. Polycarbon clement, one epistle. Ignatius, we have seven. He wrote the most. One of which is Ignatius's letter to Polycarp. So they communicated with each other. There is another epistle of Clement that we believe is fake because it's dated to the second century and he was dead by then. Okay? These men all live early 100s. And during the early 100s, the emperor in Rome was a man called Trajan, Trajano in Spanish. Trajan came to power around 98, and he lived until about 117. He was the first of what are known as the good emperors of Rome. Good emperors by Roman standards. It's not the same as our standards, okay? Trajan had a different attitude towards Christians than, for example, Nero. We know this because there is a letter from a man called Pliny. I have no Spanish translation, so here it is. Pliny. There you go. Got a song with Bad Bunny. Pliny was the, I believe I spelled that backwards. Anyways, Pliny was the governor of Pontus and Benthinia. These two Roman provinces. There was a lot of Christians in those Roman provinces. In fact, they kept multiplying. The problem that he had is that the Christians denied worshiping the Roman gods. In fact, it would be a sin to worship a Roman god. In fact, the Christians call the Roman gods idols. And so the problem the Romans had with that is that idol worship or Roman gods worship was tied up to the empire. Pastor Bolden has covered how all that worked. So if you're not going to follow what we do, then you're going against Rome. The Romans had all sorts of rituals and stuff they did. So think of it in the United States today, you don't want to say Pledge of Allegiance, or you burn the flag, or you believe that the flag is not, that would be considered treasonous, right? You're going against your civic duty. So in Rome, not going through the worship of the gods was going against your civic duty. And so Pliny writes a letter to the emperor inquiring what he should do with these people called Christians because they refuse to worship the gods and they tell people to stop worshiping the gods. Trajan, or his secretaries, whoever, writes back saying, 
Number one, he, Pliny had told him that he has put several of them to death. So he says, that's good. But don't seek them out. In other words, don't go pursuing Christians. Because the Romans figure out that's very expensive. And they keep multiplying no matter what you do. So don't seek them out. Don't go by rumors. See, if I lived in Rome and I say I didn't like you because you kept parking your carriage in front of my uh, house, I can go to the uh, court and be like, hey, this guy is a Christian. Maybe you were not a Christian. But I could accuse you of being a Christian, you know what I'm saying, to, to get you into trouble. Then you have to go through the process of proving that you're not a Christian, and all of that is very time-consuming. The courts will be held up, etc. And so Trajan writes back and says, if you have some rumors, don't go by that. But if you actually have somebody who actually proclaims Jesus, then it is well for you to bring him to court. If they deny the gods and affirm Jesus, you put him to death. If they repent, that's the word that he uses, if they repent and then offer sacrifice to the gods, then they be pardoned and let free. So the active persecution of Christians actively seeking them out did end during the reign of Trajan, but that policy kept on going even after Trajan died. It was under that policy that all three of these men died. All of them were put to death because all of these men were Bishops, they oversaw obispos. They oversaw different churches. And they were open about their faith. And they were all arrested, captured, asked to renounce the faith. And when they denied, they were put to death. One of the best accounts of this, and I'm running out of time, so I will not cover it today, is Polycarp's account. We have actually the account of his death when he died. Polycarp was burned alive. Clement was drowned. And we think Ignatius was taken to the Colosseum, and he died by, they called it, by the beasts, meaning they would release like animals, like a lion, and it would kill you, more or less. So all these men died for the faith. When you have men who died, see, the problem the Romans had is they thought that this Christian thing was just like a new thing, like a fad, like a cool fashion thing, it'll go away. But when you have men who are dying and refusing life and refusing 
to just worship the gods. I mean, literally, all you have to say is Caesar is Lord. That's all you have to say, and we will send you home. We're tired. We've been here for hours. We're on overtime. Just say that, and we can all go home, and they would not. So when you have men that are willing to do that, that shows what they believed was true. Because they all claim that Jesus Christ was Lord and that death was not the end. And they proved that with their lives and how they died. And so for the first uh, next couple of hundred years of church history, you would have not only these three men, but the men that they also discipled coming forward, dying for the faith that they proclaim. That makes them, in my opinion, legit. None of these men, like I said, especially these three, call themselves apostles. If you read their letters, the letters are humble. Originally, they wrote about exhortations. See, they follow the example of the apostles. Paul wrote epistles. They wrote epistles, right? They were doing more or less the same thing. And they were writing letters of exhortation telling Christians to persevere in the sufferings that they were going through, to not deny the Lord when the time came, and to give them the hope of the life after death. So you have three things. Persevere, both in behavior, how you live your life, and in doctrine, what you have been taught, and in the hope of the life that comes after. Because the first 300 years of Christianity, it was years of suffering and death. And when you live in that environment, the life that comes after becomes very important to you. Because you can come to church, come to church, they didn't do that, but they will gather together, and maybe two weeks from now when you gather together, the brothers might not be there. Some of them were killed in between. Or maybe you were not there because you were killed somewhere in between. And so that became the, the life after life became very important to them. It was a way of coping, of comfort, of having their hopes up that you will escape this life and go to the one after. That was the first 300 years. For us today, suffering is something unexpected. When it comes, we're shocked. Why is this happening? For them, suffering was expected. It's the normal. It's what we're called to do. It's like if you're a soldier in the army, 
battle and war is what you should expect. That's what the whole point, right? That's how they saw life. Because that's how life was for them. That's not how it is for us. Even, I don't want to belittle the suffering that Christians in other places go through. But we really haven't seen persecution like early church persecution. Even in other places. Maybe in some specific Muslim countries. Maybe. But the persecution they suffer was beyond anything we could imagine. And it came in families. Your son may be taken. Your daughter may be taken. Your wife may be taken. And then she will lose her life. And you had to keep on living. Putting your faith in the Lord. Reading the scriptures. And keeping your faith in Christ. That's the life they live. And so for the, um, the apostolic fathers, it was important for them to encourage the churches and to write words of encouragement for them, encourage them to persevere in the faith. The other important thing is, and I will be finished because we're running out of time, is the importance of communication. We remember these men because they wrote, because they spoke, because they communicated what it was given to them. He who writes, he who speaks is remembered. That's why we read them today. Because they were able to take what they had or what they received and articulate it to other people. It's important. The Christian faith is a faith of words, of concepts. It's an intellectual faith. And that is what kept these people throughout history passing on what they received from the apostles. We have to promote a faith that is intellectual. I grew up in an environment where it was the opposite. They thought the words and intellect was cold. There's no Holy Spirit in that. The Holy Spirit is loud, with a lot of loud music, and that's when you're in the Spirit. That's not true. Because then false doctrine comes in, and there's nothing to punch back at it and false teachings come in but there is not enough intellectual power to push back against it and things get messy and they get out of control and then society comes up and the church doesn't have tools to kick back at it, because words are tools. 
and they are weapons that we use in order to keep the world at bay. Because he who wins the argument wins the fight. And so they saw from early on, I mean, you're looking at a people that come from a culture that gave us the philosophers and Greek philosophy and Roman orators, Roman philosophers, and they went up against that culture and wrote against them and overpowered them with their words and with their wisdom. That is a lesson for us today. They would not put up with half of the stuff that we do. And we probably wouldn't like being in their church service. That's the truth. So we'll see. I will post. We will not go through the entire letters. We'll be here forever. But I will post the letters because you can find them. They're there. They're in English. You can read them. And when you read them, remember, these are the writings of people who walked, prayed with apostles who were chosen by Jesus Christ. A direct connection. When you read their humility and you see how humble they were, remember, these are men who walked with living apostles. These are men who saw them pray, saw them speak, saw them talk, heard them speak to them in real life. Incredible. Ministering right next to the Apostle Paul. Can't even imagine that. And so when we read them, you keep that in mind. And as we go through their writings and what they taught, and what they spoke about, just remember, these are men who walked with living apostles of Jesus. And so to end, I will say this. Let us always remember the wonderful deeds of the Lord. We're built upon something. And we're standing in shoulders of giants that came before us. These men were not perfect. They failed like we all do. They made mistakes like we all do. They said things that were sometimes untrue or factually not true. But they're writing from a time that was different from ours. They didn't have Google to look up stuff or to communicate. But these are the writings of the men that spoke and lived with the apostles and these are the writings that carry others throughout history and brought us here. And it shows us that God is still alive today as he was back then. That this has survived to this day is, is, is the proof that Christianity is true. It has survived till today. Across all the cultures of the world. And it has survived to this day. Pretty much intact in belief at least we're still here we still believe Jesus is God we still believe in the Holy Spirit 
We still believe in the Father as they did all the way back then from the beginning, and you will see that. So we're running out of time. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you because you spoke to 12 men 2,000 years ago, and they carried and wrote your word forward to others who took it and carried it forwards all the way down to us today. We pray, Lord, that you may help us understand your word, your wisdom, the things that you've given us, Lord. We pray that you give us the strength that they had to endure all of the sufferings of this life, that we may persevere in the faith, Lord, that you may cause us to persevere in the faith and remain faithful to you to the end as they did. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.